I'm Andrew Logan, and welcome to Collecting Culture, a podcast about passionate collectors and the objects they love. Today I'm guest hosting for my sister, Liz Logan. My normal role is as the audio and technical guru for the show. And today I'm talking to a collector who I really admire. Adam Rosen is an Apple consultant and has an impressive collection of over 100 Macintosh computers, period-specific software, and Apple nostalgia. He is curator of the Vintage Mac Museum, which he runs out of his home in Malden, Massachusetts, outside Boston. Our discussion covers rare items in his collection, and photos are from his website, vintagemacmuseum.com. Adam also speaks more broadly about the Apple ethos and the future of the Macintosh platform. It may be helpful for some of our less technical listeners to have a super brief history of Apple. Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak founded Apple in 1976 and released the Lisa computer in 1983. While this preceded the Macintosh line we know today, it was a landmark for personal computing as it's the first consumer-facing computer with a mouse and graphical user interface or GUI. Rather than a text-based command line interface, a GUI is still the ideal that we use today, albeit with our fingers mostly. Steve Jobs was forced out of Apple in 1985 and founded Next, a computer company aimed at higher education in business markets. Apple acquired and merged Next in 1997, allowing Jobs to become CEO once again, just as the company was on the verge of bankruptcy. After canceling the Newton line of touch-based personal digital assistants, Jobs would go on to introduce the iMac, the iPod, Uh, the iPhone, and the iPad before he passed away in 2011. We pick up our conversation at a seminal moment in 1984 when Adam, like many Americans, saw Apple's infamous 1984 Super Bowl commercial, which we have recreated for you here. We shall prevail. On January 24th, Apple Computer will introduce Macintosh, and you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984. And I saw that during the Super Bowl. I remember. And I remember in the room, everyone was like, there's a moment of silence afterwards. You're like, what the hell was that? And then everyone starts talking about it. You know, so the mystique was there. I first used a Mac then about a year later. So that was, I was a senior in, in high school when that commercial aired. And then that next fall, I went to college. And so within my first year in college, I'd started seeing some of the Macs at some of the labs there. And first, you know, played around with them and started to get the experience. So how did your first Macintosh experience take you to where you are today to consulting? Well, the the Mac has always been a part of what I've done. I'll put it that way. I, you know, I've used Macs since that point in college where I had switched over, you know, and started using it as an undergraduate. I never stopped using them. So it's always been part of my personal computing and professional computing. Then my early career, you know, my first job was with Bose Corporation, most of that time working in their AV corporate communications group. And then from there, and I was working as a recording engineer and digital media and stuff. And these were the days, again, Apple was the company that you were doing all that on. So I was surrounded by Macs and the work I was doing. And then I did freelance production for a few years, and then I went to work for a recording studio. Again, Apple is the big player in this industry. So I was always surrounded by a lot of Apple equipment 
both personally supporting it and professionally, you know, using it personally and professionally. Um, my switch to consulting came after I had been working at a job in a studio for about eight years and was looking to do something else and long story short, decided to, you know, go out and try uh, consulting on my own. But at that point, focus on the computer side of things rather than the AV side of things. Uh, and this was also a good time in the mid to, I started running my business full time as far as the Apple consulting in 2006. And this is right in the middle of Apple's rise after Steve Jobs had come back, you know, your, where your favorite era has begun, but they, you know, just growing by leaps and bounds. So that was a very, fortuitously a very good time to say, Hey, I'm available here as an Apple tech and consultant because there was a lot of people who needed help. When you're savvy with computers, you always want to have parts around. I assume that it started with having um, a bunch of computers around and and kind of blossomed into this. When did you decide that you were going to that this was a collection and not just a, a bunch of parts? So it's not as far as the current stuff to have parts around, you know, parts, spares, redundancy, things like that is, is more for the current operation. I had OS 10, an early version running on my, my current Mac at the time and picked up an old Mac plus at a local flea market here and got a copy of the original Mac OS, which I hadn't used that. I started in college a year or two after it. So th there were two or three versions. Things happened very quickly and I didn't see, you know, the day one release. And I was sort of like, well, what's the day? I'm really curious now, like how much in that original OS has been retained to this day? And I got some disc images and loaded it up and on the left side of my desk, I had Mac System 1, and on the right side of my desk, I had the 20-year-old, long-awaited OS 10. and I'm like, this is really cool. And so that was the moment when it went from just having old stuff around to really appreciating what the old stuff can do. So then you buy one more Mac, and you buy another Mac, and then a friend says, oh, I have an old Mac. Do you want this? you want that? And then, you know, well, six months later, they're all piled up in my kitchen. I guess I'm collecting old Macs now. And you, you very wisely set a bounds on yourself that you didn't want to collect past the PowerPC era. At that time, the uh, chips were made by Motorola, and they switched to Intel. Uh, I have here June 6th of 2005. And so you said this is, this is going to be the, the constraints of uh, or the vintage Mac Museum. When did that – when did you coin that? So several different constraints on it. The the first sort of era, Apple, uh, Apple has actually had three CPU architectures that they've used for the Mac over the years. Those early machines, like we talked about, the SE and the SE30, were, were all made by Motorola. They were the Motorola 68000 series, often referred to as the 68K Max. Apple shifted to PowerPC processors in, I think it was 1994, and that was made – PowerPC was a joint venture actually between Motorola, Apple, and um, IBM to manufacture the chips. All three of them manufactured the chips. And then they switched again in 2005 you know, they, over, over the course of a couple of years, but 2005 to 2006 to the Intel chips, which they're still currently using. So originally it was just 68K Max that I collected just the 68K Max and then started because those, those days the PowerPC Max were current. You weren't collecting them, you were using them, and people weren't giving them away because they just spent three grand, you know, on a machine. But by the time the Intel Max came out, 
you know, I said, okay, this, this other era is over. So I'll bound it. You know, you do to, to your question was setting limits. It was saying, all right, I'm going to say up through the end of the power PC era now is the limit of it because the current era is the Intel max. Um, that boundary is moving forward. We are still in the Intel Mac era, but we're approaching the end of it. Um, whether they change, you know, change to ARM chips or not, um, a lot of the way the Mac is going is, you know, undergoing transformation. But the other reason for bounding it is so that my possessions don't outgrow the space that I have to keep them in. Right. And obviously, to use the word vintage, there has to be a, a little bit of a time um, gap there. And since then, you've acquired things that came even before the 68K Mac. Um, I guess I read on, on the blog about the Joe story story mm-hmm. um, and how that kind of supplemented the collection, if you want to talk about that. Well, that's an example of, of how the collection grows, yes. Um, Joe Story, in this case, is a fella who I, I didn't know before, um, contacted me last year, had been a longtime Apple collector himself of some of the really old equipment, the 68K era equipment, and the Lisa, and it, I guess mid-1980s Apple was sort of his area of focus. When the GUI, when things shifted over to the GUI and the machines you know, that were around that. And... Joe, unfortunately, was diagnosed with a fatal illness, you know, then he didn't have much time left. And like a lot of other people who have this type of equipment, you know, you don't want to, you're collecting it for a reason. You think it's special. You think it's worth holding on to. The reasons may be different, but, you know, you, everyone's collecting them for some reason. And you don't want to see them just discarded or, or you know, recycled or carelessly you know, the people who don't appreciate what their value are, because some people would have no idea what this is, and other people are like, "This is amazing." You know, you can't get rid of this. So Joe knew, just knew of my efforts through the museum. You know, just through online, and he lives uh, in the Boston area. lived in the Boston area, and contacted me and just asked if I would be willing to take his equipment as part of my collection, so that he knew it would go to a good home. You know, his family didn't want it; he didn't had time to sell it. All of that stuff. And more than half of what I have has been given to me because people want to see it go to a good home. They've sought me out. It's not that I've asked for it, um, you know, or bought it because sometimes I do buy equipment on eBay or other places like that. But far more of it are people who are finding me as a collector and saying, I don't want this stuff to go to waste. Can you please, you know, give it a good home or let me know what I can do with it? So a collection like this takes up a lot of space, and I understand you have a blog post where you kind of show some of the things you're trying to do, not to downsize, but to miniaturize your collection. (laughs) Filling in, right. um, It's more like, okay, I've run out of room to have more machines in my house, but I can, hey, I can buy smaller items like, you know, buttons and pins and this article I posted recently about these little miniature Mac alarm clocks and reproductions and things like that, which are, you know, again, cute as hell. You know, the, the quickest way to any collector's heart, let's say you're a car collector, you know, we'll show some a little miniature working version of their car and they're like, how much? I must have 12 of them, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. And that lamp is incredible too, the G4, uh, the white G4 lamp. 
the the eye lamp yes made by jake harms um who is his i have the link to his stuff on my my site you know, that's another way to repurpose old computers you know, I'm, I'm collecting them and keeping them working and, and functional the other thing is to repurpose them in some way and um it, that that iMac always cried out <laughs> yeah. for this treatment. And you have anyway. a Macquarium as well, right? But maybe not. Um, I have two now, although neither of them running. I have one, the original Macquarium, made out of a Mac Plus. Uh, for your listeners who don't know what that is, a Macquarium is a hollowed-out Mac with an aquarium tank inside. So you have fish floating around, and you know pe- people have made them over all sorts of models over the years. The fellow who made the eye lamp, Jake Harms, he actually started making the aquariums out of the colored iMacs. He calls them iMacquariums. And he has a he made his own tank with a curved glass front to match the screen, you know, the way the original screen is. And in fact, if I ever if slash when I finally have a public space in my collection, I am going to hire Jake to polish up all the cases because this guy, like old car restoration, they come back looking better than new condition. You know, buffed up, shined, glossed. It's like, wow, they didn't even look like that when they were fresh out of the box, you know? And when you talk about really collectible items, there are two that I read about in your collection. One is, I think, a Quadra that seems to be a a, a kind of beta unit um, that came in with a sticker, uh, an Apple sticker and some different things on the motherboard than were on the production unit. Did you ever get that up and running? Oh, that is running. Yeah, it's it's not actually not hooked up right now. It's sitting under the desk. But that was it's it's a Quadra, which is the sixty eight oh four four sixty eight oh forty series Max, in the case of the two CI series, which was the O thirty series Max. So it was someone who took a Quadra motherboard and stuck it in an older case and used it in Apple engineering. So it, it might have been. After turning to a couple collectors, it wasn't the motherboard of the first Quadra, like I said, okay, which was the Quadra 700. If it was a Quadra 700 board in that case, that probably would have been a mock-up in engineering. In this case, it was a later model, a Quadra 650 in that case, and people said, well, you know what it was? There's probably some guy in Apple engineering who took old parts lying around and cobbled himself together a computer, and they put a property of engineering sticker on the back of it, you know? But... Yeah, it's good to have people who recognize this. You know, I got it from a guy who runs a store that sells these used and old Macs, and he sort of keeps an eye out for interesting stuff for me. And he saw this and he said, "Hey, I got this, you know, Mac Two, but it seems to have a Quadro motherboard in it and an engineering sticker on the back. Are you interested in it?" And I'm like, "Yes, don't do anything. I'll be down tomorrow." You know, and that's people say, "What are you looking to collect now?" I don't really nothing in particular. Until I get more space, <laughs> you know, I have a long wish list, but I'll know it when I see it. I, and this will kind of lead us to the next thing is the Apple developer transition system, which was when they introduced the Intel cards, um, they kind of, again, stuffed a Pentium board in a G5 case and put it on lease to developers and somehow you got one of these. I wonder if Apple has asked for it back, and and talk about the software that uh, the, the kind of software struggles. They haven't asked. No, they haven't asked for it back now. Though, if you look at the photos, um, you may have noticed that the serial number is is grayed out a bit. <laughs> uh, but at the time, they were supposed to have been returned. You know. Uh, 
it should never have been on the market in the first place. If it was for sale on eBay, it probably would have been pulled, you know, from eBay. This was a, a true prototype, unlike that that um, you know quadra cobbled together thing. So Apple made the shift again. They had purchased Next to get Next Step, and Next Step ran on PowerPC and Intel machines. And the Macs were PowerPC, but they were contemplating a transition back to the Intel chips. And in secret for a few years, Apple was compiling Mac OS X also on Intel machines so they could make the change, you know, at, at whatever point they wanted to. And they did decide to do it, you know, in, in 2005, they made the announcement, but they needed to prepare, you know, developers uh, and other hardware manufacturers needed to get ready for this change ahead of time. So there was stuff available on day one. So what Apple did was they shipped developers, they were G5 cases, so the Power Mac G5 case, which is the big tower, same size as the Mac Pro. But it had an Intel motherboard inside. It wasn't even a pro, a, like a precursor Mac Pro motherboard or anything that Apple ever shipped. It was just an off-the-shelf Pentium. I think it was Pentium Four, you know, Intel motherboard, like one of these things you'd find in a micro tower at you know Best Buy, generic PC. And Apple called this the Developer Transition System, and they least sort of sold slash leased them to developers you know for a year a year and a half at the time and then they required that the developers send them back and in exchange they would get i think it was an imac or they'd get you know a current released machine um so they didn't they didn't lose money ultimately on the hardware but it was it was just an interim you know use this while you you know test your software and i had pre-release versions of um os 10 software this was the tiger era so 10.4 was when they switched over what I have, so I have one of these machines that, you know, again, any like any of these things when thousands go out, not all of them came back. I've, I've heard over the years that Apple made some, but not a huge effort to, you know, to, to get them back, uh, which probably wouldn't be the case <laughs> today. But, you know, so, so some remained out there. I think they were sort of like, as long as you don't sell them or whatever, you know, we don't really care. So, again, same shop, actually, that gave me the Quadra f found this thing. Someone had been using it as a PC because it had an Intel motherboard and was just going to sell it for scrap metal because it was a you know underpowered PC. So I want to talk about some of the other items that are listed under the rare items in the on the website that um, the Apple Emate, the Newton, where how do you think that the Newton influenced where Apple has gone today? So the Emate was a Newton. Um, it ran the Newton OS, not the Mac OS. It was just in the la the sort of lap shop, laptop clamshell form factor. Um, everybody who visits, so I have one in my office. You know, I have stuff, some of the stuff that I have, I've set up in a couple rooms in my house, and right inside my front door in my home office, I have a wall of old Macs, and the E-Mate is sitting is one of the ones I have out. And everybody gravitates to that. It's interesting, um, kids and adults. The Newton, a couple ways where that sort of went the newton ultimately is the grandfather to the iphone you know the newton was where the term personal digital assistant was coined and handwriting recognition and keeping your database with you the team that did the newton most of them left and formed palm computing which became the palm pilot which, which then became the treo and the treo was arguably the first smartphone on the market the second big one on the market was the the blackberry series and then you know later when jobs is back at apple they came out with the iphone 
it was their own take on this without the keyboard and with the touchscreen and you know all the other things that made the iPhone successful. But the iPhone was in some ways, you know, an advancement and a reaction to the Palm and the Black, the Treo and the BlackBerry, and both of those devices evolved from the Newton. So there's a little bit of a roundabout there. The other thing that's interesting about the um, E-Mate, and I tell this to people, green, translucent, semi-translucent plastic, curvy, sort of looks like Kermit the Frog, you know, <laughs> computer. Um, what does that, you know, you sort of look at this and say, well, what did Apple start doing in the years when Steve Jobs came back? Well, they started making really curvy, colorful, you know, semi-translucent computers like the iBook, which came out at the time. Well, the industrial designer behind the E-Mate was a very young Johnny Ive, and he did a number of products at the time, which the products weren't necessarily successful, but Jobs recognized Ive's talent and you know, retained him, and of course he became the driving force behind the product design for the last 15 years. So the E-Mate that you see, the most direct influence on that in Apple is the design language that became the iBooks and the semi-translucent. Um, you know, 2000s era systems. You also have another rare item that's the 20th anniversary Mac. Uh, this is a really strange thing to wrap your mind around as a computer user. Kind of explain this to people. Um, the 20th anniversary Mac is a machine that Apple brought out. It's actually the 20th anniversary of Apple, not of the Mac. It was a Mac for the 20th anniversary of Apple. And it was supposed to be the, – the vision initially was it was going to be this you know, example of where the Mac was heading and where Apple was going in this cutting-edge, you know, forward-thinking, high-end product. And it, it became both visionary and ridiculous at the same time because it was you know, a very expensive machine that was sort of underpowered and sold really as a status symbol Mac. Um, to like executives, things like that. It was initially priced at seventy five hundred bucks and sold, sold none, and then dropped in price to fifteen hundred before they discontinued it. At the time, it was just considered a, you know, it sort of it was, it was a commercial flop. But it was also like, why are you doing this? It's arrogant. There's no need for it. But and I, I didn't like it at the time for those reasons. The, if you're viewing it visually, what it is, it's a flat panel. Apple had laptops already. They had the PowerBooks, and they've had you know flat panel screens, but they didn't have any flat panel Macs. And this is a flat panel Mac mounted vertically. It's not very thick. It's only about four or five inches thick, so you can't see it if you're looking straight on on the front. It's on this little you know nice stand bracket that you can adjust the tilt angle. Had a nice sound system built in um, that was co-designed with Bose. Ironically, I was working with Bose at the time that happened, so I'd seen sort of the development of that. But it has a separate subwoofer, which is also the power supply that connects to it. Vertical CD drive, trackpad on the desktop, and you know it it was underpowered and, and visual. You know, again, visually just meant to be more of a statement than anything else. However. Over time, I looked at it and says, well, what is this actually? This is a Mac in a vertical form factor that is a flat panel screen You know that, that this has all the computer pretty much behind it, and you don't have the bulk of it. And it's actually very similar to what they wound up bringing out as the flat panel iMacs. That's another interesting design. That was the other sort of main product that the young Johnny Ive worked on in coming up with concepts like that. 
So I find it very interesting that two products that were sort of not commercial successes for Apple, the E-Mate and the 20th anniversary Mac, both had enough innovative designs that, again, the designer was kept and wound up influencing, you know, the future Mac designs much more than, you know, you would have thought at the time. Since they were flops, so then, then of course, it becomes, you know, well, it was a flop, so they didn't make very many of them. Then they become desirable as collectible items because you see 20 years down the road, it's like, oh, this was interesting and there's not as many made. So, you know, you struggle with you know, finding the right software to go with the hardware in addition being period correct. But there is this great passion of Mac users who want to use Mac hardware outside of the bounds that uh, Apple sets on them. Um, as well as I, I know the power PC, there are still people who are developing, uh, there's a Mozilla clone 10 Fox that runs on, on PowerPC still and, and supports some of the more uh, recent advancements to the web. Mm-hmm. So there is this great passion. And what do you think it is about Apple products that, you know, outlive um, other technology so massively? That's, you know, that's a good question. And that's something people have asked me about not so much why collect, which is part of what you were, were talking about, you know, in your podcast is about, but also what's up with Apple? You know, why do so many people, cause there's someone who collects everything. You know, you look hard enough, you'll find a collective for any, any kind of thing. If you watch American pickers, you see, <laughs> you know, you see a lot of people like that. Um, but there's something, you know, there's so many more people who, whether they're Apple collectors or they're right. You, like you're, you're doing modding the old hardware, to run current software or, or keeping, you know, running really old hardware. There are people still running Newtons, by the way, speaking of that, um, and running web stuff on the, on the Newton, which is, you really sort of scratch your head, you know, why. Um, half the answer to that, or part of the answer to that is just because I can, you know, it's cool to do it. But I think part of the other answer to, you know, why keep using the old hardware is in Apple's case, it's often obsoleted intentionally so they can sell new product. That there's no reason the hardware can't support new stuff or new stuff, you know, with slightly reduced functionality, but they want to, you know, have you buy the newest and latest machine. And you know that that's their business model, and they've been accelerating that business model. But they they hit upon a core, and I think other brands that have this type of following, you know, a lifestyle following, it's the same way. It it does mark you as part of your identity. You know, up up until the last ten years, you were the underdog as an Apple user. You know, I mean, now Apple's Apple's huge. They're not the, the biggest in the desktop space, but you know, they're the target people want to take down. Um, you had to sacrifice to use a Mac to afford it, um, to get software for it, and the pace of ridicule, and a beleaguered Apple computer. So people are like, I'm not willing to give that up. And by the way, Apple, we're the ones who bought these damn machines in those years. Stop you know, going in this direction where you're making hardware we don't like anymore. Um, you know, that, that's your, your quandary. As I said, they have closed, open and closed phases, and they're very much in a closed phase right now. But I think Apple's marketing... You know, it, it was called with Jobs. It was called the reality distortion field. You know, but you that what you do to build the community and bring people together. There's a truth to it beyond just the marketing angle, and I think that's stronger with Apple stuff, which is it becomes more of your life. Um, 
and you do identify with it. I'm not a PC user. I'm a Mac user. You know, you wear the badge proudly for many years. And so you get more of people like me, you know, or people who want to give their stuff. You know, they may not have 100 computers, but they have the two or three old ones. And they say, you know, hey, I really don't want to just get rid of this. Can you make use of it? I'd like to go to a good home. You know, that's where the sentiment comes from. And the storage constraints you've come up upon, do you see yourself trying to move this into a, you know, a commercial space or uh, trying to, like, what's the next step in terms of... I would like to have this in a commercial space where it's more accessible. Um, it, it really is, I've, you know, I've outgrown the space in my home even with what I've done to, you know, to keep it bounded. Um, I think if I was married, I'd never get away with this. <laughs> uh so like many other collectors, in fact, I, you know, I'd very much like to have it somewhere where it can be appreciated in you know, two-thirds storage and one-third um, you know, display area type thing. It's tough because this isn't something that can fund itself. You know, it's not it, – it, the, the collection, I, you know, I get some money doing the file transfers and it pays for my buying new equipment and stuff, but it's not enough to support a self-sustaining space. So – I've actually started talking with some other collectors and looking into options, you know, can we share space? Can we use the space in another business or, you know, something like that. But my goal, it, it's big enough and it's grown. A lot of this growth has never been anything I planned. It's just people finding out about it and, you know, sending you equipment or asking about it. And then you get known and other folks call you like you've, you've, you know, called me today, you know, so you don't set out. It's just as if events carry themselves. Um, there needs to be an Intel era, you know, section of the Mac, which we're nearing the end of in some form right now. And then this is the type of thing that people will be interested in. There are other Apple museums, private Apple museums in, you know, around the world. There's about a half dozen of them. There's no dedicated Apple museums here in the States. Most of the things, if you don't have a backer, it's in, you know, someplace off the beaten path in an old ramshackle building because that's all you can <laughs> afford when you don't have a lot of money. Um, so my goal is yes, to try to make it public. You know, I'd love to have it somewhere once or twice a month, you know, on a Saturday, people can come by and, and visit it. And I've had people who have been interested, you know, some have seen it in my house, but you know, who would, would be more likely to come see it if it was in a, you know, a regular location and, and space. It's just coming down to a matter of money is really what it'll be. Yeah. So how can people learn more about the Vintage Mac Museum? The best way is the website, uh, which you've been referring to, which is vintagemacmuseum.com. There's – the website started – it actually started with that exhibit in Macworld Boston 2004. So when did the name Vintage Mac Museum come about? It came about then because I I wanted to publicize the event we were having. So I took out the domain vintagemacmuseum.com. The website – kind of started out as just a list of my collection which it still is but it's also become a resource uh, sort of the history of apple through the the products in the collection way to find ancillary materials and then i've been running a blog for a long time and you've talked about some of the posts you know discussing some of the equipment or some of the things in apple um so i view it now so my collection is sort of two parts there's the physical part, which is in my house, that some people see, but most people just know about. And then there's the virtual part, which is the website, which really contains, you know, it's over about 15 years worth of information at this point that I've been adding to it, you know, and linking to other Apple and vintage computing related sites. 
Okay. Well, Adam Rosen, thank you. Long answer to a short question. (laughs) Uh, Thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. And I will leave you with one word of warning that I give to everyone who talks about collecting. Leave enough room. Be careful. It starts to add up quickly. More information about Adam Rosen can be found at VintageMacMuseum.com. We'd like to thank Matt at Wolf Media, Matt at WolfMedia.com, for his voiceover expertise in recreating the Apple commercial at the beginning of the program. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and rate in your podcast app of choice, and visit us online at CollectingCulturePodcast.com for more information. My sister Liz will be back next month with another collector.